Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Boy, I can't think of any better way to start our program today. Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, we're pleased and pleasured and privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. On this particular program, we take some time, we dig into the theology and practice of Lutheran worship. We want you to be at home in your hymnal whether it be in church with your brothers and sisters in Christ, at home, uh, in your home for your family or individual devotions. For the last uh, several episodes, we have been taking a look at Divine Service Setting 1. We've been working our way uh, slowly but surely through the service. What you heard at the beginning was a portion of the Gloria, one of the hymn of praise options in Divine Service Setting 1. In our last episode, we spent the entire episode looking at the other hymn of praise option. This is the feast. And so today we want to look at the more ancient, more traditional, more, um, oh, I don't know what word I'm looking for here. It's really the default that uh, the church has had for hundreds of years when it comes to any kind of a hymn of praise. And If you are in your Lutheran service book, we're talking about page 154. says, Hymn of Praise, Glory and Excelsis. And then, as so often happens with uh, with the Latin or the Greek that's listed there, Glory to God in the Highest. And then it has some Bible passages listed there as well. This is the Song of the Angels from Luke 2. Pastor, give us, uh, give us a few thoughts on the Song of the Angels from Luke 2. Why are the angels singing, and what are they singing about? Well, yeah, the uh, angels are singing at the time of Christmas, the birth of Christ, and they're celebrating the good news that God has come down to save his people from sin, that uh, the incarnation has been seen and uh, recognized by human beings uh, at the birth of Christ. And so it happens for the first time by the angels uh, outside the ancient village of Bethlehem. Uh, The village of Bethlehem is kind of on the side of a hill uh, with a big U-shaped valley underneath it, and uh, it's in that valley that, um, you know, shepherds fed their flocks uh, in the springtime uh, when the grass was green, and uh, you can just imagine it kind of acting like a giant amphitheater as the angels appeared there uh, to announce the birth of Jesus Christ and to say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased, or uh, good pe- goodwill among men, however you translate it. Um, and uh, at the place where this probably happened, there's a chapel today. There's little caves where the shepherds would have been sleeping, uh, and you can kind of get an idea of uh, how amazing a sight that would have been at the first Christmas with the angels speaking those words and declaring the birth of Christ. Uh, imagine the uh, shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, and uh, if you are out in the country... Night is dark, really dark, and uh, there were no streetlights from the nearby city. There were no uh, automobile interstates or anything like that, no uh, airplanes flying overhead. It's dark, and then all of a sudden, with the appearance of the angel and then the choir of angels, we have the lights being turned on. Uh, Is it any wonder that the shepherds were, as the old King James Version says, sore 
afraid, sore afraid. Luke chapter 2, and uh, it's listed in a Lutheran service book on page 154. It says Luke 2.14. And I want to read uh, Luke 2.14 and following the uh, familiar Christmas story. Um, and again, I'll start at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, that, uh, that translation of verse 14 in the ESV is not as uh, flowing as the King James or even the RSV, but it is pretty accurate translation. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The Lord made it known through an angel. Angel, messenger, some thoughts on how God uses angels to communicate the message of the gospel. Pastor? Yeah, maybe even uh, understanding of what angels are. Angels are spiritual beings that were created in the beginning by God, uh, and uh, they are uh, before the face of God, meaning they have uh, the angels, at least, that we talk about in the sense of angels. They are sin-free. They are before God, uh, see his face, and uh, uh, then they bring the word of God directly uh, to people of God in specific situations. And uh, any time that an angel appears, it's terrifying because their faces reflect the glory of the holy and righteous God. And for sinful people, that's a terrifying thing to see. Uh, without the forgiveness of sins, we cannot be in a holy and righteous God's presence. So when angels appear, everybody is always sore afraid, as we said earlier. And uh, the the angels, whenever they appear, they're bringing a specific message from God. We see this with the Annunciation. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it all over the place in Scripture, where the Word of God is spoken so that people might understand what God's Word is and what its content is and what the point of uh, God's whole saving work is. And so that's the, the job of an angel is to bring that message to people. It's, uh, it's interesting. You know, when I was growing up, we used the old uh, TLH hymnal, and uh, the congregation together always sang every word of the Gloria. And I always wondered why, you know, that first line, glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth, whatever the translation is in the particular setting, is set apart for the pastor to sing those words, and then the congregation responds. And we try to do that here, and if we have a pastor or a helper, vicar, whatever, that can't, can't chant, can't sing, then those words are spoken and the congregation responds. There is really kind of a give and take that's going back in this song, and I want to get into a little more details of that uh, in, uh, in a little bit. I don't know if we'll get to that this segment or if we'll save that to the, uh, to the second segment. But there is a theological significance to the pastor speaking the words, of the angel. What uh, what would you see as uh, what's going on here, Pastor? Well, in a sense, uh, first off, the content of that first line is a declaration of the gospel, and so it's important that that comes from uh, the, the correct place in that regard. Additionally, um, the pastor is the one who's in the office to publicly speak God's word to the congregation. That's what 
part of the office the holy ministry is to speak the word and to administer the sacraments and so when we are having a direct word from god uh declaring the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and all this it, it is appropriate here to have it spoken or sung by the pastor and and maybe even facing the congregation to show that this is not the pastor's word or even a responsive word but it is god's word that's being declared to the people uh in the the good order of how the church is set up and in response to that word then the congregation sings the rest of the hymn of praise and that's the part that is you know we've talked about this before give and take in the service god speaks his word and the people respond back with a echoing of that same word and so that whole thing is taking place in this particular hymn in that regard that uh, that rhythm and flow i'm glad you brought that out that give and take that rhythm and flow uh the pastor is speaking the the part of God communicating to his people. So in a sense, I mean, trust me, folks, your pastors are no angels, but we are the message bringers because God has put us into that office of the holy ministry. Yeah, and the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which all it means is messenger. And so in other Greek texts, and even in some places in the scripture, when the word angelos is used, angel is used, we translate it as messenger, not as angel, because it's not a specific um, heavenly spiritual being that's doing the messengering. It is a person. And so, you know, we use that specific title when it's an spiritual being. We use uh, the word messenger when it's just a human being. And as long as the message is being proclaimed in its truth and purity, uh, we use that that idea. And it's not the messenger's own message. The messenger is conveying a message from someone else, from some third party. And in the office of the Holy Ministry, that third party obviously is God. Uh, I've got a, a little bit that I want to read out of the Lutheran Worship History and Practice book. It's uh, kind of an old manual for the liturgy. It was uh, put out with uh, Lutheran worship years ago. It's kind of a forgotten book, but it does have some uh, interesting historical tidbits here. And uh, from page 410 of that book, it says, After the Kyrie, Divine Service One calls for the singing of the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, Glory to God in the Highest, the angelic hymn in Luke 2.14, and the earthly confirmation of the praise. We praise you, we bless you. The minister intones it, and the congregation takes it up at the words, and on earth peace. It goes on uh, to talk about uh, some other uh, things with regard to Lent and Advent. I want to skip to the next paragraph. Like the Kyrie, the glory in excelsis came into the Eucharistic liturgy from the Eastern Church. Eucharistic liturgy simply means the communion part of the liturgy. Eucharist is a Greek word meaning thanksgiving, and sometimes it is used for the the Lord's Supper portion of the service or any worship service that has the Lord's Supper involved or included. When introduced into the West, it was first used as a song of thanksgiving. The earliest record of its inclusion in the Mass is found in the Liber Pontificalis, approximately A.D. 530, so that's 6th century. So we've been, we've been doing this, folks, for 1,500, 1,600 years. Tradition has it that it was first used by the Pope on Christmas Eve, since it is the hymn of the angels celebrating the Incarnation. Its common use, however, was not permitted for another 600 years. 
The Middle Ages witnessed a profusion of plain song melodies, as well as textual elaborations and tropes. Some Lutheran liturgies of the 16th and 17th century prescribed the use of the Gloria, with the simple et in terra pax, and on earth peace, on ordinary Sundays, reserving the rest of it, the rest of this peace, for special occasions. I thought that history was interesting. This this goes back a long time. The uh, the the uh, hymn of praise that we talked about last time. This is the feast is uh, relatively new, at least for Lutheran ears. Pastor uh, Pastor Moline uh, shattered a bit of that myth by uh, bringing uh, the Bach cantata to us last time. But uh, we are singing the same song all the way back to the song that was sung to the angels by the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. This has been going on in the church for centuries. And so when we take up this song, there is something about space and time and all of this that kind of comes into one. And that's part of the beauty of the liturgy. Wouldn't wouldn't you uh, wouldn't you agree, pastor? Yeah, definitely, and and I want to make sure we make the point, too. It's not just a historical thing that's the uh, foundation for this. The reason that people have sung it throughout the ages is because it's based squarely and firmly on the Scriptures. It's an exact quote from the Scriptures, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. And not only of the Scriptures, but a Scripture that is directly uh, spoken by the angels from the mouth of God himself. And so it's kind of a neat way in that regard. We're singing the song of heaven here that spilt over into earth at the birth of Christ, and we are still echoing that same word uh, 2,000 years later. When we come back, we want to look at the rhythm and flow in the Gloria and uh, hear it in its entirety. Don't change that dial. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're looking at the details of Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book. We are at the section for the Hymn of Praise. Today we are looking at the Gloria in Excelsis, Glory to God in the Highest. We uh, have been hearing bits and pieces of that at the beginning and at the end, and uh, we want to we want to take some time and we want to listen to, it's a very short piece, beautiful piece, and familiar to many of you, and if it's not familiar to you, um, I would just invite you to uh, visit a liturgical worshiping congregation. The Gloria is sung uh, not only in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregations, but it's sung in other Lutheran Church denominations. It's sung in the Anglican Church. It's sung in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, churches that use a liturgy uh, very, very often 
use a Gloria as a part of the liturgy, and for a lot of wonderful reasons. The main thing is not historical. As Pastor Moline said in segment number one, the main reason that we use this is because this is the Word of God, and it conveys the truth of God, especially with regard to who Jesus is and what he has done. And so uh, what we want to what we want to do now before we uh, look at this rhythm and flow that we've talked about with regard to not only the liturgy in general, but the rhythm and flow included in the Gloria. Let's listen to the Gloria from Divine Service setting one. This is on page 154 in Lutheran Service Book. There you have it. Wonderful words, beautiful words, uh, God's word. That's what makes it beautiful words, but also a, a beautiful setting. I remember in uh, uh, the olden days back here at Good Shepherd when we, uh, uh, and some of you know the history of this congregation, when I came here uh, over 20 years ago, over 22 years ago, in fact, uh, the congregation uh, did not use the hymnal, was not familiar with the hymnal. It's been a very slow very gradual and very joyous uh, journey. And uh, maybe someday we'll take a, uh, an episode of At Home in Your Hymnal and we'll talk about that as well. But when we, when we started doing the uh, liturgical services out of the hymnal, bits and pieces, it seemed like everybody knew this is the feast. And to get to the point where we could sing the Gloria as a natural part of our worship, to sing the Gloria as the default and uh, save and reserve that this is the feast hymn of praise for special occasions rather than doing it every week. Uh, that was really, really a wonderful thing. And now uh, people that would come into our congregation, they would never, ever know that that history even existed and that we had to learn this tune of this Gloria from scratch. And not everybody was happy about it. But uh, I think everybody is happy about it now, and it is uh, a word that we have, for the most part, committed to memory, and is just a, uh, a wonderful, joyous part of that rhythm and flow of God speaking and the people of God responding, which is what the divine service is all about. 
Pastor, I've uh, got another resource here, and this is the manual on the liturgy that was put out when Lutheran Book of Worship was put out, and this was in the late 1970s. I don't know what the uh, copyright date of this is. It's uh, from Augsburg. It's another one of those forgotten little resources, forgotten little books. Copyright 1979. And uh, there's some helpful things in here, too. And some things, uh, when we sing the Gloria, I don't think we uh, realize or notice very often the rhythm and flow that is going back and forth in this particular tune. And so uh, let me just read them ring from page 212 for the, uh, from the Manual on the Liturgy of Lutheran Book of Worship. And it says, The Gloria Next Chelsea's is an elaboration of the song of the angels over the fields of Bethlehem, which appears in Luke 2.14. In form, it is a series of acclamations. Now, I want you to think about that. A series of acclamations. And when you think of acclam- acclamation, you are thinking you are acclaiming something or you are praising something. So a series of praises. Uh, when you go to a Husker football game and the chants are going back and forth and maybe they're the same words, maybe they're changing the words, maybe they're escalating. I say Husker, you say power. I say, I don't even know what the rest of them are. I have to, I have to uh, go to a game go again. Big red. Yeah, go, go Big, big Red. Go Big Red. Yeah, and you just know that. It's the liturgy of the football game. It is the liturgy of the football game and so when, we, when we're singing the Gloria... I don't want to take away from the beauty of the song, but it may be helpful to think about this, Gloria, with regard to uh, these series of acclamations. And here again, it says, this series of acclamations is a style which was characteristic of the ancient Greek liturgy. And so, once again, it connects us to our past in the Christian church. The canticle opens with an antiphon. Uh, pastor, an antiphon, when I think of antiphon, I think of like bookends, something at the beginning, something at the end. Is there something more that we need to know with regard to that word antiphon? No, it's just a, a part of the um, scripture or, or a hymn or whatever that's emphasized at the beginning. Uh, that's all that word means. Okay. So the canticle opens with an antiphon, glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. It is followed by three stanzas of acclamation. And before we get into those individual stanzas of acclamation, I want to, um, I want to talk about the, the, uh, the first antiphon here. Glory to God in the highest. Pastor, we've talked about this before. Why do I need to tell God that he has glory? Why do I need to tell him that he is the highest? Um, We've, we've clearly established that God does not need his ego stroked. He is the owner, author of all things. So by making this statement, glory to God in the highest, what are we accomplishing and why are we doing it? It's not saying it's so that God knows who he is. God, uh, in his very essence, exists and knows who he is. Uh, Rather, it's said for our good so that we know who God is and that we acknowledge who he is. God likes it when we speak his word back to him, when we uh, tell him what he has told us, the same way that uh, I like it when I tell my child, um, put your dishes in the dishwasher, and then if I ask him, what did I tell you to do? And they say, put my dishes in the dishwasher. 
I like the fact that they at least heard what I said so that I know um, I wasn't speaking to a brick wall or whatever. And in the same way with God, he likes us, his children, to say back to him the things he's taught us um, for our sake and for our good to show that we know what we're what we're confessing. And sometimes when the kids uh, are speaking back directions or words to mommy and daddy, uh, they don't really believe them and they don't really like them. There's something different going on here, too, because it's not mere uh, rote repetition, mindlessly saying back to God what he says to us, unless we really believe these words. Right. We cannot give glory to God in the highest, in the lowest, any place in between. Um, it is a confession of faith, that same saying back to God. We're saying it to him not only because he wants us to, because he likes it, but because we believe it. And uh, repetition is the mother of all learning, and that's why these parts of the service that we repeat, uh, it's not to put anybody to sleep, and it's not uh, because we don't take seriously the parts of Scripture that talk about vain repetition. This is not vain repetition. This is repetition with a purpose. It is teaching the faith and it is confessing the faith. What are we confessing? Peace to his people on earth. Now, uh, this may seem like clumsy wording, peace to his people on earth. And if you're familiar with some of the older Lutheran liturgies, the words here are a little bit different. And uh, it's a more accurate translation of what Luke 2.14 is all about. Uh, many times when people talk about the Christmas story in Luke 2, this is some kind of a generic piece. Peace and goodwill to men. And while that is true, that is not specific enough. So first of all, Pastor, um, a few words on peace. What kind of peace are we talking about? talking about a peace that the world can understand, not just uh, people getting along in the world, but rather the conflict that's been between humanity and God because of our sin and our wrongdoing against his word has been solved in the baby that's born in Bethlehem. That's why Christ comes to bleed and to die and to rise again so that all of our sins might be forgiven. And with our sin forgiven, we can now be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. There's no longer conflict between us. It has been solved and taken care of with Jesus Christ. That's a peace that God wishes there to be between us, and it's a peace that as long as we live in this sinful world, we cannot fully comprehend. I have I have told this to people before, and I want to get your reaction, Pastor. I have said that when we're in the liturgy of the church and you hear the word peace, you can mentally translate that as the forgiveness of sins. Is that is that accurate? Is that fair? Do you like that? Well, wherever there's forgiveness of sins, there's peace as well. These things go hand in hand. With If we have no forgiveness of sins, there's not peace. And so, uh, you know, th- th- you can definitely make that analogy and that connection. You cannot have peace of mind, peace of heart, peace of soul, apart from the peace which surpasses all understanding the forgiveness of sins won by the bloody death and the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pastor, we got about a minute left in this segment. Peace to who? Who? Peace to his people on earth. Why is that significant that we say those words in that way? 
Well, um, we say those words in that way because it is uh, a declaration really here that there's peace here. Uh, this is where the battlefield was. It's almost like uh, Abraham Lincoln going to Gettysburg where the battle had been fought and uh, giving his speech there. In the same way, the glory given to God, this is, this was the enemy-held territory until Christ won it for uh, for God and uh, the, the right side uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when we have peace here on earth, it is a declaration that... Uh, God has won and the battle's over, and he stands on the field of battle victorious. Uh, See his banners flow. Perhaps we could quote from the hymn. Oh, there we go. All right, we need to uh, take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. We're looking at the Gloria from Divine Service 1. When we come back, we're going to look at the three stanzas of acclamation, this peace that surpasses all understanding. We have much reason to celebrate. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. This week's church service is more than hymns and a sermon. Get a more in-depth study of this week's message with Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline on Proclaiming the One. Tune in Sundays at 12 p.m., Wednesdays at 11 a.m., Fridays at 11 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. and Saturdays at 10 a.m. For past episodes on demand, go to thecross957.org backslash proclaiming the one. Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Pastor, I don't know about you, but I could sing that song 24-7-365 until the good Lord calls me home. It doesn't really get any better than that. It highlights the content of the liturgy. I think, uh, I think often when we, uh, when we are critical of uh, things that are maybe more contemporary Christian kind of praise, kind of music, we're, we're critical of it for the wrong reason. Uh, we don't like the tune. We don't like the instrumentation. We don't like the fog and smoke uh, that's behind the background singers. We don't like the singers up in front of the congregation, in front of the altar of God. Uh, the primary thing that we need to be evaluating, not that all those things aren't important, But the primary thing that we need to be evaluating is the content of the words that are being sung or spoken. And do they bring praise and honor and glory to God? Do they convey the gospel in a law gospel connotation? Do they speak clearly the word of God or are they ambiguous? All of these things needs to be primary in our focus. And the words of our liturgy pass those litmus tests again and again and again and again. Yeah, I agree. The uh, content is the first and most important thing. But then uh, additionally, content uh, informs uh, what goes on with that as well. When we uh, really believe that the God we're singing about, uh, according to these words, and the the good theology is present, uh, it demands a certain type of reverence as well from us that... uh, really ought to eliminate some of those uh, other things that distract from God being present among us. And so I've 
keep thinking about this as well. We really need to um, have somebody write a, a doctoral thesis or a book about uh, theology of reverence and what that means. We don't act reverently to earn forgiveness. Christ has done that for us, but because he has done that for us in response, we act reverently. And so uh, we could talk a long time about that whole idea, but probably not here for this show today. Well, and uh, our, our former associate got the Ph.D. bug and uh, took off to go write his doctoral thesis uh, at the Fort Wayne Seminary. And so I'm just telling you right here and right now, no, you're not doing that. Inspire <laughs> one of our vicars, and I, and I think that that would be uh, a worthy topic, this, this whole topic of reverence, because it's somewhat subjective, What's reverent for you may not be reverent for me. And that's what makes this uh, a little bit of a difficult topic to talk about. Uh, with Pastor Morundi, uh, his Ph.D. thesis is going to be on a theology of suffering. And uh, we, we all suffer. And so uh, it, that's not nearly as uh, subjective as that word reverence. However, uh, God's Word teaches us a lot with regard to what is reverent and what is not reverent. And uh, that is a word that has, it just dawned on me, that has fallen out of our language. We never use the word irreverent anymore. Right, and I was, that's what my point was going to be in response to your, your statement there, is that uh, it's not subjective uh, necessarily between me and you and the person there. When God tells us in his word, uh, what reverent behavior looks like. And so, you know, we see examples of that throughout the Scripture. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to give away my whole idea here, but uh, uh, there we go. <laughs> oh, boy. Dr. Dr. Moline Bug. Uh, I'll do, folks, I'll do my best to squash that, at least till after I'm retired. Um, we, uh, we're looking at the uh, rhythm and flow in the words of the Gloria. And that first uh, antiphon, glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth. Pastor, before we get into the uh, three specific stanzas of acclamation, one more point I wanted to make on that antiphon and the reference to his people. Uh, Christ has won peace for the whole world, but the whole world does not benefit from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So uh, a few words of explanation with regard to the significance of his people, people that are possessed by him or people that belong to him. Yeah, in uh, we use that phrase here because that's kind of an English translation of what the Greek says. The Greek, uh, maybe to even be more specific, it says, upon the earth, peace uh, to his, to the people of his good pleasure. And uh, that's the way that the Greek reads there specifically. And so his people are the ones for whom he has good pleasure. Now that phrase is also then used in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 uh, twice. And so in verse 5, Ephesians 1, 5, it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his good pleasure. 
And then again in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. And so the thing that makes us people of God's good pleasure, that makes us uh, his people, is the fact that Jesus came and purchased and won us, uh, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, innocent suffering and death. Uh, Christ dies for the entire world uh, on the cross to forgive every single sin. And then in the word and in the sacrament, that is delivered specifically to us people uh, who have faith in him. And uh, that is, in fact, faith itself is the gift that receives that gift uh, from God. And and so we have that idea of objective and subjective justification there. Uh, objectively, every person in the world uh, Christ died for and won forgiveness of sins for. Subjectively, not all receive that gift with thanksgiving and gladness. Uh, those who have faith in God are the ones who do receive that gift. And so uh, we have that idea here carried in just those few little words. So Christ has won peace for the whole world. Only those who have faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for them get any benefit from it. So that's what it means to be his people. We're not talking about some generic, everybody goes to heaven because we sang Christmas carols and watched Snoopy and Linus on TV. This is uh, this is very specific. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, theologians have talked about the scandal of particularity. It is a scandalous teaching in Christianity that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. This is what God's word teaches. This is scandalous to the world, and you will be persecuted if you believe this, and uh, especially if you confess it. And that's exactly what we are confessing here in the Gloria. Let's move on to the uh, stanzas of acclamation. The first stanza of acclamation is addressed to God the Father. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father. We worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. A few uh, a few words or comments, Pastor, on uh, it seems like we are addressing God with a number of names, a number of titles, a number of attributes, and then we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. There's a threefold acclamation that's going on here after the fourfold, uh, well, Lord God, Lord God, Heavenly King, Almighty God and Father. So it's kind of three or four. Uh, I like to think in terms of three. It's kind of that Trinitarian notion. It's also a good rhetorical device. It flows well off the tongue. So your comments on that uh, first stanza of acclamation. Well, yeah, I think it is uh, Trinitarian, and we oftentimes do this. There's a tradition of doing it in the church, of having things go in threes to emphasize the fact that our God is Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity, and that we have three persons as one God, one God as three persons. And then even when we get into the individual persons, we like to say what they are in terms of three to help us remember. And so we have that. He's God, he's Heavenly King, and he's Father. Uh, and so we have those ideas all there carried. This is the first person of the Trinity. And so we worship, we give thanks, and we praise him uh, for all his glory and majesty and who he is. Really, we praise and worship and thanks him, give thanks to him for his identity as the one who has created us, 
daily provides all that we need to support our body and life and uh, takes care of us uh, now and forever. The uh, way that we begin in this uh, stanza of acclamation is, as you mentioned before, speaking back to God what he has clearly revealed to us. He has revealed to us that he is our Lord. He has revealed to us that he is our King. He has revealed to us that he is almighty, and he has revealed to us that he is our Father. You can look at each one of those individual characteristics of God, but when you put them all together, you get a, a picture that no human being could create in their own mind. No fiction, no fantasy could come up with a God who is and does what our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is and does. And for that reason, we worship, we give thanks, and we praise. Specifically here, we worship, we give thanks, and we praise you for your glory. Now, we've talked about this glory of God, especially as it's talked about in the Old Testament, this kavod. Worship, praise, and thanks to God because of his glory. What does the the fact that God is glorious have to do with me, poor, miserable sinner, me? Well, um, poor, miserable sinner, me can't be in the glory of God on my own authority or by my own works or goodness because I am a poor, miserable sinner. And so uh, the very fact that I'm able to see God's glory is going to be brought about because of Jesus Christ that we're going to see here in a minute. And so the forgiveness of sins allows us to see God and his glory, to uh, fall down and to worship him and really uh, to be where he is, or rather maybe we should think of it the other way, he comes to where we are. Um, and because of Christ, then we get to stay where we are uh, in his glory. And and I think, too, all these words that we have in this first little stanza here, when we hear that uh, uh, he's the heavenly king, the almighty God, uh, the Father, the Lord, and worship and giving thanks. All these things bring to mind uh, different parts of the scripture where these things are taught. And so really this hymn is bringing all those parts of scripture together into one concise way so we can sing the entirety of scripture in just a few short lines. Would it be fair to say that when we're talking about the glory of God, we are making a confession of the real presence of God, how God is really present with his people, not only back then uh, with his kavod and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, uh, burning bush kind of stuff, but he is really present with us today in word and sacrament. Is that the confession, the real presence confession we're making with just that one word, glory? I would say yes, and in fact, I'd say that's what Jesus teaches. Wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he promises to be. And uh, how is the name of God kept holy when his word is taught in its truth and purity, and we as people of God uh, believe that word? So I, I think that is the truth. There is so much here, and uh, uh, we are uh, we're getting bogged down and painfully going slow here. We need to uh, keep moving here with our next segment, but we are out of time already in this particular segment. When we come back, we want to look at uh, stanzas two and three of the Gloria in Divine Service, setting one, page 154 in Lutheran Service Book. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. 
You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal. This is episode 17. We've been looking at the Gloria in Divine Service setting one. Most of the time when we think of the Gloria, we think of the message of the angel, Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest. But as we move forward with uh, looking at these uh, stanzas of acclamation in our Gloria, there is a, another little rubric that says John 1, verse 29. And uh, this next section we're going to be looking at deals with this. Let me read from John chapter 1, and I'll begin with verse 29 and read a little bit past. The next day, he saw Jesus, and we're talking John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's from John chapter 1. In our second stanza, our second acclamation in the Gloria, The uh, stanza is addressed to God the Son in his relationship to the Father. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, receive our prayer. Okay, let's look at those individually, Pastor. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father. What's up with that? Well, first off, the word Christ means anointed one, Messiah in the Hebrew, and so that's telling us who Jesus is. Uh, We also have only Son of God the Father, the one we just sang about. He is the only begotten Son, the only uh, child of God, if you will, in that regard. Uh, And what that means is that uh, he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So this is a confession of who Jesus is. Uh, as the Son of the Father. And uh, uh, and so that's an important thing right there. We have the entire uh, Apostles, Nicene, and uh, Athanasian creeds kind of summarized in these few words here that we're saying. And uh, we are all children of the Father by grace through faith. We're talking about a very special and unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We're how, not how would begotten, you... we're adopted Okay, children. I was just going to say, how would you explain that difference? And that's it right there. That is the significance of that begotten word. And that's why we want to cling so tightly to the 
scriptural words so that there is no confusion or ambiguity uh, with regard to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The next line talks uh, is taken almost directly from John chapter 1, those words that I read just a moment ago. Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, and then it adds, have mercy on us. Why do you think that Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Why do you think that's put together here? Well, first off, Lord God is echoing the same words we just sang about God the Father, and so this is the same God. Jesus is not a different God than God the Father. Uh, Jesus is not a different God than the uh, God of the Old Testament. He is the very same God, the Lord God. And then we have these words from St. John, like you said, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Again, we're quoting Scripture. We're quoting a uh, word that speaks directly about who Christ is, and it brings to mind all the uh, Old Testament with the sacrificial system where uh, animals were slaughtered, their blood poured on the altar, their bodies burned as a way to uh, grant forgiveness of sins to people, all of that foreshadowing Jesus who goes to the cross to bleed and to die and to uh, suffer hell so that we might not be called guilty for our sins but instead be adopted as children of God. And so all this is brought together uh, in the identity of who Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And then we have a prayer, the prayer that we always pray to God, have mercy on us. In other words, uh, show us compassion, uh, uh, rescue us from sin, death, and the power of the devil, take away our sin, and grant us eternal life, not because we earn it, but because you love us, and love is your very identity, and, and that's what you promise to do. Don't give us what our sins have earned, what we deserve. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and then that last line, you know, I, I just think this is, is so beautifully constructed. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, incarnation. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Uh, redemption, crucifixion, resurrection. You are seated at the right hand of the Father receive our prayer, ascension, and reign. Um, a few words about you're seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? And why is Jesus receiving our prayers? Tell us a little bit about the work of Jesus as it continues on now since his ascension. Well, um, you the right hand of a throne or the right hand of a king is a position of power. It's where the advisor sits and kind of uh, not only uh, tells people's names who come in that the king doesn't care to keep track of, he also gives them advice on... Uh, uh, what his rule involves, military conquests, uh, conquests, uh, taxes, all these things. The person at the right hand is a position of power because he has the ear of the king. And Jesus now sits there speaking on our behalf, as uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He intercedes for us uh, along with the Holy Spirit saying, Don't hold Clint Poppy's sin against him because my blood covers it over. And God looks at Jesus and says, well done, that's great, I won't. Uh, he can uh, uh, experience all the joys of heaven because of you and what you've done. And so Jesus sits there in the ascension speaking to God on our behalf. It's not that Jesus is stuck there or that uh, uh, Jesus is only in one 
place as the God-man. He, he also is present in the Word down here. He's present in the Lord's Supper. He's present in baptism. Uh, Jesus, the Ascended One, uh, really is everywhere. It's hard to put a position on him. So when we say this, we're really talking about the things he's doing more than a physical place in heaven that he is. Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, we talk about that, we think about that. Most of the time we think about that in the past tense. We don't think about how his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king continues on now until the last day. The third stanza, the last part of our Gloria also addressed to Christ, includes a reference to the Holy Spirit, again, Trinitarian in nature, and returns to at the end to the theme of the glory of the Father, echoing the opening antiphon. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Alone, alone, alone. You alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High. Um, whatever order you want to take them in, first of all, talking about talk about the alone, and then those three alones that are referenced here, Holy One, Lord, and Most High. There is no other God that... Um exists, let alone competes with the one true, real God. Uh, all the other gods are just imaginary, made-up baloney. You uh, shall have no other gods before right. me? Are we talking First Commandment stuff we here? We are definitely talking First Commandment stuff here. And so when we say the word alone about the real God, um, that's a confession of faith that's important for us to keep in mind. Uh, he is the Holy One. In fact, all holiness comes from him. Uh, it doesn't start with us, but rather it begins with God. He gives it to us by his word and sacrament. And this is that ebb and flow of the worship service. Uh, he is the Lord. As we talked about earlier, this has this connotation of the Old Testament God, uh, Yahweh. Um, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the same God of the New Testament as well. He's the Most High, meaning he uh, uh, reigns above every single thing that exists uh, in the universe. He's in control of it all. He is um, the God above every other thing, uh, real or imagined, that could be. Uh, which, which connects us back to the beginning where the pastor begins, glory to God, God in, the in the highest. highest. Correct. And so we've got we've got this bracket. This is kind of like an additional antiphon here. Okay, sorry to cut in. Nope, that's okay. And so then we end with the Trinitarian uh, antiphon again, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father. This is the God that we worship, and when two or more are gathered in that name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God promises to be here with us. I, uh, I get shivers up my spine when we hear this, Gloria in its entirety, when we sing it in the corporate worship of the church. Uh, I love to sing this. Uh, I, I know it by heart, uh, and many of you do too. I love to sing it um, as a part of my personal piety, personal devotional life. I sing it while I'm mowing the lawn, uh, along with the Venite and the Tedeum and some of those other wonderful uh, liturgical parts here. But Today, as we've gone through this individually and we've looked at these stanzas, sometimes you pick something apart and it loses something in the details. For me, it has only enhanced the beauty of this particular hymn. Now, I know, Pastor, um, what we did with the uh, uh, 
other hymn of praise, This is the Feast, we connected back to some of the Bach pieces that are out there. And sadly, we don't have enough time to do that with this particular episode, episode 17. We just had so much here with the Gloria. But can you give us a little bit of a teaser? And I promise when we begin episode 18, we'll continue a little bit with talking about the Gloria, and we'll get a chance to hear historically in the church some of the ways that the Gloria has been used. We don't have to use these exact words. We don't have to use these this exact tune. We have much freedom and much flexibility here. A few words on Bach's use of the Gloria. Well, uh, he has a cantata where uh, it's unique in, in regards that the words are not in German, but they are in Latin. I think that's because these particular words were familiar to everybody from their use in the divine service for 2,000 years, or at the time of Bach, 1,700 years, uh, in the Latin Mass. And so it is familiar, and even the name that we have, the Gloria in Excelsis, is Latin. Uh, and so it's unique. Bach wrote this uh, tune for Latin uh, words, and also then it is performed, uh, is written for the Christmas time when these words were sung by the angels, uh, and so in that regard it's neat. It's only got three movements, but it focuses on those words, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, which is where we take these words and we sing them additionally in other places in the divine service to bring to close, for example, the introit uh, or other parts of the service, reminding us that the glory, uh, glorious God that we worship is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's the one who was in the past, is now, and will be forever in the future. In the uh, little bit of time that we have left, for somebody who would want to listen to some of these things on their own, where would they go and how would they do it? Uh, You do it in an instant. If you go to YouTube and you type in in their search bar, be WV191. There'll be a whole bunch of different versions of this Bach cantata that is the Gloria in Excelsis that come up, and you can listen to any of them. Okay, thank you, Pastor. And I promise in episode 18 coming up next time, we'll uh, listen to some of that Bach Gloria music. But for now, uh, for Pastor Moline, Pastor Poppy, this is At Home in Your Hymnal. Episode 17, The Gloria in Divine Service 1. We'll be back again next time. God's richest blessings in Christ.